The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and, and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is... The Buck Sexton Show. All right, team. Welcome back. Hour two is upon us, which is always fun. And we are joined by the one and only, the wonderful Kim Strassel. She's the author of The Intimidation Game, How the Left is Silencing Free Speech. You can go check it out on Amazon.com right now. Actually, wait until after the interview, but then you should go buy it. She's a columnist for The Wall Street Journal. Her latest there, Democrats Send Their Regrets. Kim, great to have you. Hi, it's so great to be here again, Buck. So Democrats send their regrets on what, Kim? I assume the list is long, but you get into some specifics and some details here. I think they send their regrets on pretty much everything. They spent, as you well know, eight years deciding that they were going to break all the rules in Washington, do things the way they wanted to do them. But now it turns out that when you operate Washington that way, the other side gets to build off your legacy. So One of their biggest regrets, for instance, was Harry Reid's decision in 2013 to blow up the filibuster for most presidential nominees. And that is why we see this parade of reformers coming out of the Trump transition team, because they no longer have to worry about getting 60 votes to get their nominees confirmed. And it's really allowed them to blow out the the boat on on thinking big and big names. What was the thinking I know that you can't know, I can't know, because you got to get in the heads of the Democrats here. But Which is hard. Which is hard. But it was said at the time, hey, guys, hey, Democrats, if you get rid of this filibuster, you know, just wait till the shoe's on the other foot. Just wait until uh, – did they assume that they would be in power forever, do you think, or that they could sort of browbeat Republicans via some assistance from much of the media into not doing to them as they had done unto others? I just – I do think that people are looking at them like, yeah, dudes, this is how it's going to be now. And we told you this is how it would be if you did this. Two things. I do believe that they had bought this line that they were on the verge of electoral dominance. You know, if you listen to any of these Democratic uh, you know, people doing demography for them, they have been saying for years and years, we all know this. I remember back when Obama was elected in 2008, guys like Rui Teixeira saying, Yeah, you know, we are about to, given the demographics of Hispanic population and other minority growth and the the fall off and white voters, that we will simply run this country by virtue of people having babies. 
And I really believe that a lot of Democrats thought that that was true. I do believe they also think, yes, that they would be able to exert enough pressure if they ever lost power to, to force Republicans to do it differently. Also, Oh, wait, did we lose Kim? Sorry, Kim. What'd you say? I, I think it cut out there for a second. Oh, no, we lost Kim Strassel. No. So sad. We're trying to get her back in a second. It's a Soros conspiracy, obviously. We need to come up with somebody else. Soros doesn't scare people anymore. I need to come up with a new, a new uh, boogeyman for whenever we have a tech issue here. You guys need to help me out with this. Is it the Russian? Did the Russians hack us? But the Russians like the Russians like me. No, because of Commie Bear. He's like my special Russia liaison. There's no problems. So I don't think the Russians would hack me. Putin and I, let's be honest. There we go. That's right. Let it rip in the background there for a second. Uh, Putin and I would get along famously, I'm sure, for two or three minutes. Although his English isn't, isn't great from what I understand. Um, anyway. So wait, we got Kim Strassel back. Hey, Kim Strassel, we drop you for a second. You were you were saying the federal communications division. So <laughs> wait, what, what happened? Where are we? Let, let, let's go back because we dropped. We, we had a drop call there for a second. So you were telling us about how yeah, why Democrats thought they could. get Yes, away with why this. they thought they could get away with this and how now we look at them with zero sympathy because they were told this would happen. And it is yeah, now. And happening. I think I think also they sometimes can't see beyond their immediate desires. And look, they had some nominees they wanted to have confirmed. They had, well, look what the agenda was at the time, Buck. They wanted to pack the federal courts. In particular, they wanted to pack the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And they didn't want to have to bother with the Republican filibuster. They figured they would pack that court, wait until Supreme Court justice left, and then pack that one as well, and they would run the judiciary for the next 50 years. And now I suppose they're just clinging to the hope that they can... Supreme Court, Supreme Court nominees, there the filibuster is sacred, right? <laughs> they, well, that's, and that's another thing that they regret. If you look back, it was Tim Kaine, our vice presidential candidate with Hillary Clinton, who warned only a couple of months ago when everyone was convinced that Hillary Clinton was going to win, he, he warned everyone in the Senate, the Republicans in the Senate, he said, you know, if you guys are going to filibuster a Hillary Clinton Supreme Court nominee, we're not going to let you get away with it. It was a, a threat that they would get rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees as well. Now you see them regretting that, and Chuck Schumer, the new Democratic Senate leader, saying, oh, no, the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees is inviolate. You can't touch that. Yeah, I mean, one of the the most uh, enduring legacies of the Obama administration will be the packing of the federal judiciary with nominees that were able to sail through because the Democrats wanted them to. But now that shows that they've opened the door to Republicans putting, oh, my gosh, Ben Carson in as HUD as HUD secretary. I mean, the, the people they're going to put into some of these positions are obviously really upsetting the left. I, I do think there would be some filibusters in place for some of Trump's nominees. Oh, absolutely. I, I read with such glee today the New York Times article running through with a whole list of cabinet members, and each paragraph seemed to get increasingly more sad and, and dispirited because this is their worst nightmare in terms of a team of people that, by the way, I think are not beholden to anyone. That if you look, one thing that I find really interesting about these cabinet picks is that few of them need to be taking these jobs. They are 
kind of independent in their own right. They A lot of them haven't been in public service before. Uh, they know a great deal about the things on which they work and speak, and they've been in the trenches and fought some of these battles. So this is going to be – this is a serious team. Now, uh, Kim, back in my government service days, uh, I had some friends who had interactions, colleagues and friends who had interactions with Nancy Pelosi, including some uh, some Democrats and people who would go on to sort of serve on the more political side of, of the federal government. And I, I remember very pointedly a couple of times being told that they were shocked at how uh, in, in, indifferent to knowledge she was, would be a nice way to put it. Uh, and yet here we are. Uh, the Democrats have had the chance to pick somebody else for leadership, and they're sticking with the Pelosi train. What is it about Nancy Pelosi the Democrats can't live without? It's extraordinary. Part of this is that Nancy Pelosi, through her failures, has solidified her own position. And what I mean by that is that when she first came to become Speaker in 2006, it was over one of the most big tent Democratic parties ever. They have more than 250 members, I believe, from pretty much every state, all kinds of walks of life, a lot of different diversity, blue dog Democrats, Northeast liberals, coal mining representatives, all kinds of things. Now, as there has been backlash against the Obama and Pelosi and Reid liberal agenda, a lot of those middle-of-the-roads and centrist Democrats obviously got thrown out. And these days, and I find this number astonishing, one-third of all House Democrats hail from just three states, California, New York, and Massachusetts. And when you weed out any opposing voices in your caucus and all that's left are the true believers, yes, you're going to reelect Nancy Pelosi again. By the way, you use the term in your piece "alt left" with uh, Senator uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren. That was the first. Somebody brought that up on the show yesterday. It was the first time I had seen that. Uh, is that is that catching on, or is, is that just is that just Kim Strassel doing her thing here? Yeah, I think it was just Kim doing her own thing. But there is a different term catching on, which I like even more, and I wish I'd have heard it because I did used that for the column instead, which is "control left," like control key. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's that I, I like that one too. Um, it, but have but to ha- there is look that the kind of wacky wing of the Democratic Party, the, this pro- super progressive wing, Elizabeth Warren, really pushed her party into taking a lot of the positions that have resulted in their electoral defeats. And it was encouraging this last week. The House of Representatives was working on a bill put forward by Republicans, a medical innovation bill. It was pretty good stuff. And Nancy Pelosi, I mean, sorry, Elizabeth Warren, the senator of Massachusetts, hated it. She made several floor speeches against it, went out on the road to complain about it, said it was a giveaway to Big Pharma, said it made her gag. Um, And in the end, every single one of the Democrats in the House from her home state of Massachusetts voted for it anyway. So I do think that there are some people who are realizing this is incredibly progressive uh, left-wing rhetoric, uh, populist rhetoric uh, about the winners and the losers and the, the wealthy and the not wealthy is not necessarily uh, always going to, to win you things out with the public. Whose Democratic Party is it right now? I mean, I, I, it's OK, it's still Obama's. But in 2017, once Obama leaves the White House, who is the who's the leader, the, the de facto leader of the modern Democratic Party or the, or the current Democratic Party, I should say? 
this is a secondary tragedy, I think, of what the Democrats have done to their party. It's not only did they pick Hillary Clinton, which, who was a, a very bad choice to be their nominee, but in doing so, refused to make way for a new generation of leaders. Now, that was partly their own fault. No one stepped up really to challenge her other than, you know, Martin O'Malley and Bernie Sanders. But they do have a few people out there. Uh, you know, the Cuomos of the world, uh, the Chris Van Hollens of the world. Uh, but they are not being heard because they did just reelect Nancy Pelosi. They've uh, elected Chuck Schumer in the Senate. He's an older member of the party. The ranks of all the senior ranking positions in the House are filled by Democrats who were elected to the House before I was even born, likely you as well, too. So it's a very older party, and they're not willingly handing over power. So we don't know who the party belongs to at the moment. And on the other side of the aisle, I just wanted to ask for your overall reactions, assessments. Uh, what do you think of the of the Trump cabinet as it's it's still being formed? But we've got some decisions that have been made. How are you? How are you viewing all this? Overall, I think it's incredibly exciting, especially in those kind of workman positions, uh, the Education Department, Health and Human Services Department, uh, HUD, uh, Ben Carson, Betsy DeVos at Education, Tom Price. These are the places where the worst regulations tend to come out and where the most work is set to be done in terms of root and branch overhaul of bad government policies. And these are people who really have the, the smarts and the backbone to do it. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, I think so far on the national security team, it's very encouraging, especially the recent naming of General Mattis. You probably have even better views on that than I do. Um, my one little bit of worry is still the economic team, mostly because there's a lot of tension there, I think, between protectionist Trump and free market Trump, and I'm not really sure which of those wins. Yeah, it seems like some of his advisors, I've had some of them on the show, uh, they say, well, you know, I don't agree with Donald on that. <laughs> there, there's, that's where all of a sudden you'll hear people who have been very close to the Trump campaign say, look, I, I just can't go along with a, 30 per, a 35% tariff on goods on certain companies, for example. Uh, how do you, is, uh, I guess that, that's just a tension that will be resolved one way or another in the months ahead. It will. What worries me is I think, you know, Donald Trump likes to do things that are very popular with the public. And his recent mow-mowing of carrier corporation got, was very well received. Now you see him doing it with Rexnord. But you know this, and I know this, the best way to really get companies to stay in the United States or build in the United States in the first place is to overhaul all the policies that make the United States a place you don't want to be, whether it's labor policy or tax policy or health care policy. And Donald Trump has so much more ability and levers at his command to do really important economic overhaul from that right rather than chasing thousands of different companies around and beating them up and trying to get them to stay in an uneconomic situation. Kim Strassel is author of The Intimidation Game, How the Left is Silencing Free Speech, and a columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Kim, always great to have you. Thank you so much for making the time today. Thanks, Buck. Team, we'll go into a break. We'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network.
The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and, and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. The Buck Sexton Show. Uh, Someone's... I'm going to have to maybe explain this one to me. So this is from the New York Times. And by the way, a caller brought this up yesterday, and uh, I just I didn't know uh, anything specifically about this meeting. And uh, as I'm seeing it here, huh, it's the New York Times. Trump meets with Al Gore on climate change while House GOP rebuffs tariff plan. Okay. Um Interesting. Well, we'll get to the tariff side of this maybe later. Um, but Trump meeting with Al Gore on climate change. Here's what the, how the piece begins. Al Gore thought he would be bending the ear of the of the advisor Mr. Trump trusts most, his daughter Ivanka. Instead, the man bearing the inconvenient truth went straight to the source, the president-elect himself. Uh, I had a lengthy and very productive session with the president-elect. Mr. Gore, the former vice president, told reporters at Trump Tower It was a sincere search for areas of common ground. I had a meeting beforehand with Ivanka Trump. The bulk of the time was with the president-elect Donald Trump. I found it an extremely interesting conversation and to be continued. Hundreds of scientists are also telling Mr. Trump in a new letter that climate change is real and needs to be addressed. Why is Trump meeting with Al Gore? Al Gore, whom is... A just a bloviating uh, epic fraud and Al Gore's meeting with Donald Trump. I, I, I don't get this. I don't understand this move. You know, sometimes and look, sometimes Trump does things and I know a lot of people say he's doing the 4D chess thing or what's the 4D chess here? Why is it that Al Gore would be meeting with Donald Trump and Ivanka as well? meeting with Al Gore to talk about climate change. I also say, you know, th- this notion that it's just something that needs to be addressed and and you can sort of check a box that just addresses it uh, is one of the, the great fallacies in all domestic policy discussions that happens in this country on a regular basis. Climate change is a wildly complicated issue to address if you chose to address it. Uh, there would be tremendous trade-offs, a lot of back and forth, a lot of cost-benefit analysis would have to be done. And that's if you actually thought that the planet was increasingly you know, in, in jeopardy from this whole thing that I don't believe. 
and I, I don't actually want to see the planet destroyed as much as I know I'm, I'm on the right. I'm a conservative, so I must just want future generations to like live in misery and, and pain. And I, I don't know where they get this idea. I don't know why this is able to continue on as it is. Um, but addressing climate, it's, you know, there's sort of two things. One, do you believe in climate change? You check a box, yes or no. And if you check the box, no, well, then you're some sort of a, uh, you know, a cretin, an imbecile, uh, you're, you're anti-science, you know, you're some sort of a freak show. And even then beyond that, well, you know, do you want to address climate change? What is, what does that even mean? You're going to sign on to some pact that will try to reduce our level of, oh, what about all the countries of the rest of the world? Well, you know, we're going to have a framework for them, too. Is it a framework where they can both uh, self-grade and set their own – they can set their own targets and then set their own grades for meeting those targets? Um, is that what's really going on? Is that, the, is that the way that we're going to solve this problem? Uh, how many industries should be destroyed along the way? How expensive should your electricity get, as well as the electricity that is needed – to refrigerate your food, as well as all the other uh, things that climate change affects in the economy that affect you, that affect your pocketbook, that affect prosperity. I mean, I always think it's a useful just, – just think about what this country looks like without fossil fuels tomorrow. And I think that starts to put into perspective how crazy this idea is um, that, one, oil is bad – Gas is bad. These are bad things, and they're destroying the planet. And two, that there's some simple fix to all of this, even if you think that there's a problem. Uh, I, I don't know why Trump is meeting with Al Gore. I'm sure people could come up with some explanation. But honestly, if somebody put me on the spot right now, which I guess I am because I'm on a live radio show, maybe Trump was just curious. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Buck Sexton Show. We're joined now by John Fund. He's a columnist for National Review. John, great to have you. A pleasure. Thank you, Buck. So you have a piece up in the Wall Street Journal, John, that you co-author with Hans von Spakovsky, another uh, guest here that we have in the Freedom Hut as, as often as we can. Uh, do illegal votes decide elections? Uh, Trump started this furor with his tweet about millions of illegals voting. Everyone said, oh, that's ridiculous. Do illegals vote? Yes, of course they do. Uh, I think Donald Trump was a little premature in putting a number to it because the worst part of our election system, Buck, is we don't know how much chicanery, fraud, and incompetence there is in our election system. But we have lots of clues, which I'm happy to go into with you, including today's clue that one half of Detroit, Michigan's precincts can't be recounted because there was so much sloppiness involved in casting the votes. I'm not saying it's fraud, but I'm saying it's a lot of incompetence there, and it's been going on there for 20, 30 years. And that clearly gets people's attention, Michigan being one of the key states that Donald Trump had to win to defeat Hillary Clinton. And the margin was small. It was a kind of margin where sloppy vote tallying could have some uh, some some impact but does that mean that jill stein is right to demand a recount john well look i believe if people want to pay for a recount and it's not of the taxpayer's dime they should have a recount however she waited three weeks for her request 
which clearly makes it a political ploy because she didn't have any evidence to present. Uh, and what happened, of course, is with the election uh, just a few days ago, the, the recount. I'm sorry, there's just a, pl- a plane going by. It happens. It's okay. I'm I'm here in New York City. We hear all the fire trucks and ambulances that pass by the Freedom Hut day in and day out, John. So no worries. What What happens is uh, the Electoral College meeting on December 19th. Joe Stein's intent was obviously to carry the recount into that period so that the electors couldn't meet and that Trump's victory would somehow be tainted. So it was clearly a political ploy. But now, can you make the case for me? I mean, you're, you, you know this stuff backwards and forwards. John, you've been studying this for a long time and writing on it for a long time. What is the most compelling case that there is not just, you know, I, th- I think I could even get MSNBC hosts to admit that a couple of illegals probably voted in the last election and they shouldn't have. And it was illegal for them to vote. And I'm talking about, you know, illegal aliens voting. Uh, but what's the most pro- what's the most potent case you can make or what evidence can you point to that? We're not talking about three or four here. We're talking about numbers that could actually make a difference in a state like Michigan, where the margin was very small. There was an academic study that was conducted in 2014, which looked at 30,000 people who had voted, and it asked them, are you a non-citizen? And if you're a non-citizen, are you registered? And if you're registered, did you vote? And they found that in the 2008 presidential election, 15% of non-citizens said they were registered to vote, and... 6% of all non-citizens voted in that election. If that were the case, we're talking about the Senate race in Minnesota being flipped, and that was the famous Al Franken race that gave Democrats 60 filibuster-proof seats in the Senate and gave us Obamacare because the Republicans couldn't run a filibuster against it. It also probably flipped a couple states over to Barack Obama. Now, when you, whenever this issue comes up, there'll be like a a splainer piece on Vox.com or the HuffPost or whatever, and they'll they'll pull all the prosecutions for voter fraud that have happened, and it, it, there aren't that many. There are some, which, of course, then also means they can't claim there are none, which is somehow often said even still on TV by pundits with big platforms. But anyway, uh, they'll look at them and they'll say, well, see, l- look at how many prosecutions there have been for voter fraud. Uh, how, do, how do you respond to that, John, that there are so few prosecutions? Is it just because well, we're not fuck. looking for it? Well, that's part of it. If you don't look for something, you're not going to find it. And of course, in a secret ballot, if you saw somebody show up at a polling place who says they're dead or is otherwise ineligible and they're not checked with an ID or something like that, they throw their ballot in with everybody else's. It can never be pulled out and examined. But the real answer is the number you're hearing is a federal prosecutions by the Justice Department. Well, you know, Buck, that most voting is, all voting is done at the state and local level. That's who controls the vote. So most of the prosecutions, 95% of them, are done at the state and local level. They don't show up in the statistics that you hear. The only ones the feds do are things that cross state lines or are giant conspiracies. Is it fair to say that there have been elections, at least at the state level or higher, in the last 50 years that uh, have turned because of illegal votes or turned because of, uh, you know, illegal activity around voting. If the numbers by this academic study at Old Dominion and George Mason, which has, I think, been ratified by a recent November 2016 study just last month by a group called America's Coalition, if that's accurate, every close election in the country could have turned on illegal voting, every single one of them. Every single one of them. I mean, that's astonishing. We're, we're always told that, you know, why would illegals vote? There's no reason for them to vote. They don't need to break the law. There's well, no purpose. In first it. of all, 
many of them are misled. Many of them are told if you're applying for citizenship, here, you can register to vote. It's just a pr procedure. And then they're told you can vote because you're in the line to become a citizen. So some of them are misled. Some of them are encouraged and paid to go vote. In Orange County, California, it used to be five, ten, fifteen dollars Here, sign up, register to vote, and go and vote. And, of course, California makes it illegal to ask people for ID at the polls. So here you have this problem in California. You can get a driver's license if you're an illegal alien. You don't need an ID to vote, and your driver's license can get you other documents that allow you to not only vote, but to register to vote others and collect ballots. So if the honor system doesn't work, which we're kind of on an honor system here when it comes to all this, how hard would it be to shore up the voting system so that this kind of fraud wouldn't happen? Well, there are two things that the Obama administration has done to discourage integrity of elections. The first is the states have asked the Department of Homeland Security over and over again, Buck, please give us your list of legal non-citizens, legal non-citizens. We can compare them with our voter registration rules and see if their people are voting. We have a clue that this is happening because often people will, will sign up to register to vote. Then they'll get a jury notice and they'll write back saying, I, I can't serve in your jury because I'm a non-citizen. Non-citizen. So this is a this is a real problem. Trump shouldn't have come out with the numbers, but this notion of the media peddles, John. This is the last one I'll have for you because I know you got to run. Uh, this idea the media puts out there that there's no illegal voting and then and that it is preposterous to even think that it could turn an election. You don't buy that at all. Well, the other thing the Obama administration has done is it. Four states have passed laws: Arizona, Alabama, Georgia, Kansas that say if you want to register to vote, you have to prove you're a citizen. The Obama administration has taken them to court. It has sued them. It has tried to block them in every way possible. I hope that the incoming Trump Justice Department turns that around and says, look, if a state wants to demand citizenship proof to register to vote, that is a reasonable attempt to police the election and make sure we don't have. Remember, we have something like 30 to 40 million non-citizens in this country, most of them legal, but many of them illegal. This would help prevent that large group of people from being encouraged to cast an illegal ballot. And you know what they say, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Absolutely. John Fund is a columnist for National Review, and you can also read his latest piece in the Wall Street Journal, Do Illegal Votes Decide Elections? John, great to have you. Hope you make your flight. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, team 888-900-3393 on the phones. Also, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. I'm a little behind in the Facebook messages. Uh, I'm going to get through as many of them as I can today and tonight. Um, so don't think that I've forgotten or uh, I'm not reading them. I am. And uh, with that little interlude, we'll be back in a few minutes. Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. Team, if you've never thought about a silencer for your firearm, I ask that you give it some thought. And the best way to do that is to go check out all the offerings and the process and the assistance, the help that you can get from silencershop.com. They 
uh, have a friendly, knowledgeable staff. They're always available to help or answer any of your questions. And when you purchase a silencer from silencershop.com, you simply pick it up at a local dealer with no transfer fees and no shipping. When shooting with a silencer, shooting becomes a more social sport because it's easier to communicate and you can enjoy the environment around you more. Who needs all that racket, all that loud noise? Every time you depress the trigger, you don't need to feel like your eardrums are getting blown out. So a silencer makes sure that that does not happen. It makes it a lot easier for you to enjoy what's going on around, and uh, I would recommend you check it out. So silencershop.com is the place to go. Again, check out all the best offerings and the best prices and service on silencershop.com. Dot com Help make the world a quieter place, which, as I'm here in New York City, and it's just an endless parade of dump trucks and construction vehicles and ambulances and fire trucks and other loud noise. Making the world a quieter place does sound like a fantastic idea, I have to tell you. I, I, I will, my authoritarian impulse kicks in when it comes to excessive noise, um, and, and I, I really do wish that there was a way to, for example, punish people to think that when they have to wait two seconds behind somebody at a red light or whatever, they should just lean on the horn for, for about 15 seconds. Uh, excessive noise is the bane of my existence. It's really something that bothers me more than a lot. And, and I understand that I probably become an authoritarian when it, when it uh, comes to noise and noise issues. And living in New York City and having that as a problem is something that it's not easy to deal with. There's actually some kind of a, a condition, I think, where some noises set people off in an irrational way. And I, I do hate whistling that much. I, I, I got to look up what it is again. But there's it like triggers something in the brain where people just completely like hits like a, a rage button. Obviously, I control myself and don't say anything if somebody starts whistling. But whistling uh, drives me insane. I absolutely hate it. Um, but also loud construction noise, which is seemingly inescapable in New York City. The buildings here are large and beautiful and and in many cases, uh, you know, quite architecturally marvelous. And yet everyone's always gutting them, renovating them, doing all this stuff to them. Uh, drives me insane. Drives me. Sorry, this is I'm turning this into now a, a New York City therapy session. Uh, let me move on to answer perhaps a question that was posed by me earlier in the show, and that is Biden's claim that he's going to run. Or I'm sorry, I, I got ahead of myself there. Who is going to be the de facto head of the Democratic Party once Obama is no longer in the White House? I, I don't think Obama is going to go back and try to run for Senate somewhere or something. I think he's going to enjoy his status as the most uh, the most revered ex-president, uh, I mean, certainly of our li- of my lifetime, and and probably for several lifetimes, uh, in terms of the way the media treats him and and the amount of uh, clout and exposure and the sort of magnification of his voice that will occur post presidency, um, it, it seems to me very likely that Obama is going to have a tremendous amount of influence on the direction and tone and everything else of the. Uh, Democratic Party, even after he leaves office. But who's going to be the the figurehead that you know can run for office? I mean, who's going to be the person that takes it all the way to the White House in 2020 against Trump? Biden has already said it's been 27 days since Donald Trump was elected the 45th president. And Joe Biden has said that he's going to run. Uh, he's going to run in 2020. So I'm going to run in 2020, told Biden told a group of reporters at the Capitol on Monday. So uh, what the hell, man? 
Yeah, I am, Biden said. Yeah, I am. We're going to run again. Uh, yeah. Joe Biden is going to run. Biden will would turn 78 after the 2020 election. Um, I don't look. Maybe he's just saying this because why not? Because as he says, like, so uh, what the hell, man? But it seems to me unlikely that the Democratic Party is going to be able to rally around Joe Biden. I mean, he's he's a good number two man for the Democrats, uh, I guess. Didn't really leave much of a mark on the Obama administration. I, I think Biden will be most remembered for his eight years uh, serving as vice president to Obama for the sort of gaffes and, and that sort of stuff. I, I don't really know that there's much that I know if we had a Biden spokesperson on it right now, that say, oh, his imprint on foreign policy it's we couldn't you know we couldn't do without it it's been amazing it's been so essential to all of us but it's i don't think we i don't think we buy that i don't think people are going to sign on for that one so you know we'll see i I don't think it's going to be biden people have said cory booker i mean now you're at least kind of in the wheelhouse because you know guys charismatic uh to a degree um you know obviously very uh you know comfortable on camera, well-spoken, all that sort of stuff, you know, which, as we know, is this is running for president is really now just a media war. Um, the, the policy gets put in in a distant second, I think, to how the person sounds, looks, comes across um, this president. I mean, this election, more than a lot of others, I think, showed that. Yeah, Trump's message was it was certainly potent and tapped into something that was going on in this country. But don't underestimate how unlikable Hillary really was. Uh, Don't underestimate how, you know, the media always sort of knew you could tell that they needed to sort of constantly coddle and protect her image because Hillary out there on the stump and talking to people and kissing babies and, you know, at Chipotle. Wasn't she at Chipotle and no one saw her that time? I think that's where she was. Uh, Whatever she's doing, that is uh, not something that wins over large numbers of voters for her. She's not somebody that can rely on that sort of stuff to uh, push her push her through. So um, that's my thought on Biden running in 2020. I don't think it's going to happen. But it is interesting the Democratic Party is currently in search of someone who would need to be the standard bearer. I mean, the Democratic Party really needs someone to rally around, and they don't have anybody. It's not going to be Pelosi. It's not going to be Chuck Schumer. Uh, you look at their sort of young... Th- Elizabeth Warren? Really? I don't think so. Um, Bernie Sanders? I mean, they, I don't think they go full socialist. So we'll have to see what they come up with. But right now, it's kind of fun watching them in a little bit of disarray. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.